Well, we are returning again this morning to the book of Daniel. Uh, It was already a bit of a complexity to come back into the book of Daniel when we did, because if you recall, prior to the, the break that we took during the summer for our summer psalms, we had been preaching through Daniel and, and gone through the section of Daniel that, that is most well-known. Uh, it's the section of Daniel that is the historical narrative section, the, the history of, of what happened and, and the stories that we all know well about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then we took a break for summer only to come back two weeks ago to the section of Daniel that is completely different. It is the section of Daniel that is called apocalyptic literature, apocalypse, unveiling, revelation. That's what the word apocalypse means. And, uh, and this is a apocalyptic literature is very complex. It's very dense. It, it's like uh, vivid pictures. Uh, we have an apocalyptic book in the New Testament. It's called the book of Revelation. And if you've ever read that, you know how difficult that can be to interpret. Uh, Daniel 7, chapters 7 through 12, are a series of these apocalyptic visions. And so coming back after a whole summer and diving right into the apocalypse of Daniel was difficult in and of itself. Uh, And then that uh, began two weeks ago, uh, and I did half part of Daniel 7. And then, of course, last week uh, I was down in Maryland uh, for my best friend's memorial service and, uh, and then preached in his stead. He was pastor at Trinity uh, Presbyterian Church in Crofton. Um, so that meant that we now have uh, a week in between and now trying to come back into this apocalypse uh, makes it all the more difficult. Uh, but we will try our best nonetheless. One of the things that I, I want to say right from the start is that uh, there is a lot uh, in here that I'm not going to be able to cover thoroughly all of the, the, the section that is uh, from cha- uh, verses 1 through um, 12, and, but that will, if you want to get the details of that, you can listen to the sermon from two weeks ago. One thing I do want to quote here is the same scholar that I quoted last week. Uh, which is this. He's talking about apocalyptic. One of the things that we, a lot of us, I'm not accusing you all of this, but I know I have and and other people I know, when we read books like Revelation, when we read these kind of visions like in Daniel, we, we become obsessed with trying to figure out every little detail of these visions. We become obsessed with trying to figure out what this dragon might be, or what this beast might be, who in history this might be referring to. And one of the things that we have to understand is that focusing on those details uh, is not the point oftentimes. It doesn't mean that the details are unimportant, but what it means is that we will never get to the bottom of what every single one of these details means, and that's okay because apocalyptic visions are meant to be looked at like impressionistic paintings. The closer you get to an impressionistic painting, it begins to look like dots, and you don't know what it's all about. And then you back up and you see the big picture, and suddenly you know what the whole thing is about. And one scholar, Old Testament, prominent Old Testament scholar, says this, 
Biblical apocalyptic shows us ahead of time the end of this world. It is complex and mysterious, but it has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful if we focus our attention on what is clear and straightforward rather than on what is complicated and obscure. If we do that, then we will find blessing and encouragement in the apocalyptic portions of the Bible. So, we are back in Daniel chapter 7. As I said, last week we looked at verses 1 through 12. This morning we're going to pick up at verse 13 and go to the end. Daniel chapter 7, if you're going to be using the Bibles uh, that we have provided here, if you didn't bring one but would like to follow along, you'll find that on pages 744 and 745 of that Bible. Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it in pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel 
is around 65 years old here when he has this dream. As you know, uh, if you were here for the the other sermons, uh, Daniel was hauled off to Babylon as a boy. He was probably only around 14 or so when he was torn away from his homeland, hauled off to Babylon, away from everything that he knew, away from the temple that he knew, away from the teaching that he knew, and was uh, thrust into Babylonian culture and brainwashed. He was... uh, very proficient in what he learned, and and he was placed in a very high position in King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, reign. King Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, as a lot of you know, the the great king of Babylon, the the greatest, uh, and Daniel served up till this point in his life, most of his life under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, However, by this time in this vision, it's been about 10 years since Nebuchadnezzar died. Daniel's about, as I said, 65. Uh, He is seeing Babylon slowly descend uh, from its great heights. And I think Daniel, if we read between the lines, is sinking slowly into obscurity himself. And it's during this time of uncertainty that he has this dream. And it wasn't a good dream. This dream terrified him. Because right from the start, uh, we see these Four great and terrifying beasts come out of the sea. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the sea to the Jews was not a happy place. The sea represented chaos and unconstrained evil. And Daniel sees these beasts. And one of the things that we see when we look at Daniel as a whole is that it has a a very um, amazing structure that was structured that way on purpose. And when we look at chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel, we see that those chapters are written in a different language. Uh, Chapters 1 and 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew, which is what the majority of the Old Testament is written in. Daniel chapters 7 through 12, written in language very close to Hebrew called Aramaic. And Daniel's uh, uh, chapters 2 through 7, written in Aramaic, are also structured in what we call a chiastic structure, which means that chapter 2 and 7 mirror each other. Chapter 3 and 6 mirror one another, and chapters 4 and 5 mirror one another. You recall, for instance, chapter 3 is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to the statue and being thrown into the fiery furnace and being uh, released miraculously. Chapter 6 is about Daniel refusing to obey the order not to pray and being thrown into the lion's den and being released miraculously by the power of God. Well, if if chapter 2 and chapter 7 mirror each other, and they do, what we find in both of those is that there are dreams had by two different people. Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams. And he has a dream that terrifies him, and it's about a giant statue that is crushed. And that statue is made up of different layers of different metals. And as if you recall, those layers represent four kingdoms. The first, the head of gold, we're told, is Babylon. It is Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he comes crashing down by the rock that is cut out of the mountain, along with all the other kingdoms. 
Chapter 7 now, which mirrors chapter 2, also is a dream about four kingdoms, represented not by four layers on a great statue, but by these four terrifying beasts. Now, we don't know for sure what any of these kingdoms are other than the first vision that we're told for sure is Babylon, the head of gold. None of the other kingdoms are ever named. So we can make our best guess. And I, along with a lot of other scholars, I'm not a scholar, but, but scholars, and I agree with them, believe that the four layers in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, under Alexander the Great, and Rome. Rome is the last and, and kind of most terrifying of those kingdoms. And we can kind of make the same guess, it seems, with Daniel's dream. In Daniel's dream, these four great beasts seem to re be represented by Babylon, the lion with wings, Medo-Persia, which is the bear, Greece under Alexander the Great, which is the leopard with wings, and then Rome, which is the, the indescribable beast, the one that is most terrifying. However, Again, we need to understand that none of these kingdoms are named, even in the section that is the interpretation of the dream. When Daniel asks, what, what does this mean? I mean, Daniel is, if he can't figure it out, what hope do we have? Daniel was batting a thousand prior to this in terms of interpreting dreams. Daniel has his own dream, and he has to ask, what is the interpretation? And when he's given the interpretation, he still isn't told what these beasts represent exactly. They're left unnamed. What does that mean? It means that whatever kingdoms these beasts represent, that's not the main point. That's not the main point. One, again, prominent Old Testament scholar says this, when the angelic interpreter explains to Daniel what the dream means, he doesn't clarify the identity of the kingdoms. This suggests that a proper understanding of the vision does not rest on resolving this question. In fact, the attempt to identify the various beasts actually directs us away from the proper interpretation of the vision. Daniel 7 is meant to present, this is still the scholar, that this present age will always be this way until the end of this age. The beasts, whatever they meant specifically, of this present world order may change, may change their shape as the centuries pass, but their violence and lust for power continues. For instance, fast forward 700 years when John has his vision on the island of Patmos, his apocalypse. He's told of a beast. What, what is his beast? Revelation 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. His beast is basically a conglomeration of all of these. It had 10 horns, 7 heads, 10 diadems, blasphemous names on its heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The point is that the beasts, state power, state power wielded by sinful human kings 
will continue to rise up as long as this era continues. As long as we are in the last days, in between the uh, ascension of Christ and his return, state power wielded by sinful human beings will continue to exist and will continue to trample down and punish those who get in its way. We, we see that all over the world today. There is one significant shift, however, that we need to pay attention to, I think, to really understand what's happening. And it pertains to this fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom is very different from the other three. I mean, Daniel specifically wants to know what about this fourth kingdom. And as we saw in the sermon two weeks ago, uh, this fourth kingdom, out of this fourth kingdom arises this, well, there are ten horns which signify fierceness and, and defensiveness. Uh, you can imagine a horn. We don't, we don't think of horns very much these days, but, but in those days, animals were seen fighting all the time, and the animal with the biggest horns won. This beast has ten horns, and one of the horns begins as a little horn, but it begins to grow, and as it grows in dominance, it displaces the other horns. And, and Daniel wants to know, what about this kingdom and this horn? And one of the things that we see when it gets to that horn is that it's different from the other kingdoms. The other kingdoms seem to have almost a, a, a destructive nature toward anyone that gets in their way. And we see that. We see that with world powers. that They just destroy whoever's in their way, Rome. I mean, Rome would move in, and uh, they would come in with their legions and say, you're under our power, and if you resist, you will be crushed. You either accept this willingly, or you accept it under our power and might. That's the way these kingdoms were. What would happen is these kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, they conquered and destroyed anyone and everyone. And if God's people happened to be there, they got run over in the process. However, we see something different about this little horn. This little horn that grows up to be a significant horn specifically and only seems to target the saints of the Most High. This horn targets God's people. And we have seen states that do that. We see them today. Jeff just prayed for Christians every week here, just about, we pray for persecuted Christians around the world where the state is targeting them and saying, you will be destroyed for following Christ. We saw this in Daniel when, uh, when, when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to bow down. And what happened? They got thrown into the, in, into the fiery furnace. Everyone else who bowed down was okay. But the state went after them because they wouldn't bow down. Well, from the earliest days of the church, this little horn in Daniel was understood to be what the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist, or as what is also referred to as the man of lawlessness in Paul's letter. 
This little horn is a picture of the world, the spirit of the Antichrist, under the control of Satan in its opposition to Christ and to his saints, specifically. Jesus said that to his followers. He said, if the world hates you, know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus said that. He said that to his followers. I love you, the world's going to hate you. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We, God's people, wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The spirit of the Antichrist has always been around and it will continue to be around until Christ returns. And if I understand the New Testament correctly, uh, there will come one who will be the Antichrist one day. Daniel is not told which earthly kingdoms these are. However, all we need to do is read verses 15 to 18 to see what is the main point of this vision. Look at verses 15 to 18. Daniel, uh, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, one of these heavenly witnesses, an angel, and I asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Look at the interpretation. He sums it all up right here. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever. That's the point. If we lose that, we lose what Daniel 7 is about. Notice how many times this idea is repeated. In verse 18, it's repeated. The saints of the Most High are going to receive the kingdom and possess forever and ever. Verse 22, the horn's going to make war with the saints and prevail over them for a time until the judgment comes and then the saints are going to possess the kingdom. Verses 25 through 27, we see again how, how this horn wears out the saints of the Most High. He's, the saints are given into his hand for a while until... At the end, the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Now, if we go all the way back to what I quoted at the beginning of this sermon, to what that Old Testament scholar said, that if we look at what is obvious, we will find our encouragement there. And if we look at this We find our blessing and encouragement there, that Christian, no matter what the kingdoms of this world look like now, no matter what they look like before, no matter what they're going to look like 10 years from now, no matter how awesome they may seem in their power, no matter how terrifying they may be for God's people, all earthly kingdoms are temporary. But the kingdom of God established by Jesus and given to us, is eternal. That's what we focus on. Now, one of the reasons this chapter, chapter 7, 
is so amazing is not only because it's the, the hinge kind of around which all of Daniel turns, but also because of the way it's structured. Because smack dab in the middle of all of this talk of these terrifying earthly kingdoms are verses 9 through 14. Right in the middle. It's like we're supposed to zoom in to the middle. In the midst of all of this chaos, what we find in verses 9 through 12 is that God is the ancient of days. However these earthly kingdoms may look for a time, they are here today and gone tomorrow. They are like the grass that the wind blows away. But our God is the ancient of days. He always was and he always will be. No matter how long Rome lasted, it fell. God's reign will never fall. God is only called the Ancient of Days here. But notice here the description of the Ancient of Days. His hair is white as snow. Great wisdom and age there. I'm glad to see that uh, there. But, but it also it, it points to his purity, his righteousness. When all of this chaos and this evil is erupting from these earthly kingdoms, God's reign is pure and holy and majestic and wise. Notice that, that uh, many thrones are placed, but only one is occupied. And when the Ancient of Days takes his seat in that throne... There is calm. There is not chaos. Millions and millions without number serve him. The throne room of the ancient days is, is not chaotic. It's not surging. And one of the things that we see is that while the ancient of days is reigning, while he is being served by a multitude, at the same time, the little horn is mocking See, we, we, we need to understand that, that there is an already to the reign of the Ancient of Days and a not yet. The Ancient of Days will return one day. And when he returns, all opposition will be forcibly obliterated. But during this time, when we see earthly kingdoms still reigning in evil ways, it doesn't mean God is not on his throne. He still is. And that's what Daniel saw. And it is during this vision that we then see verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this is one of the most important two verses in the entire Bible. There are so many things packed into these two verses, but I just want to point some of them out. There are so many important things said about this Son of Man. First of all, unlike the beasts that 
explode out of the raging, chaotic, evil sea, notice that the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven. One scholar says this is clearly an investiture rather than an invasion. Notice, unlike the beasts that are, that are not just animals but are perversions of animals, they're, they're oddities, they, they resemble an animal but, but twisted in some way. Notice that, that unlike these beasts, the Son of Man is fully human. It's interesting, Daniel 7, again, is written in Aramaic. However, this phrase here, translated son of man, though in Aramaic, is the equivalent of the Hebrew phrase son of Adam. This son of man is a human being, fully and truly human, unlike the beasts. And yet, notice, at the same time, Notice that he is referred to as one who is like a son of man. Just like a human and yet something unique about him. Something unique among all human beings. In in this way, he is human and yet like a human. Notice, too, that he is presented, it says, to or before the Ancient of Days. Again, he's not trying to usurp power. He's not battling the Ancient of Days. He is being presented to him. One of the interesting things about this little preposition, translated to, he is presented to the Ancient of Days. That is one way to translate that. However, Hebrew scholars, way back in the day, even before Christ was born, they did a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And they took this phrase in another way that it could be translated. And if you read the Septuagint, you actually see that they took it that way. They didn't translate this as this Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days, but as the other way it can be translated, he came as the Ancient of Days. In other words, this one who is like a son of man is fully human, unique among all humanity, and this person, while distinct from the Ancient of Days so that he can be presented to him, is nevertheless, in some sense, also the Ancient of Days. He is, though a different person, nevertheless equal in power, glory, and honor. And we don't need to look at that one preposition to to figure this out. We just need to look at the description of what is given to him. Notice that he is given everlasting dominion. He is given everlasting glory, and he is given everlasting worship from all peoples, nations, and languages. That word serve we have here, he is served by all people. That word can also be translated worshiped. Worshiped as God is worshiped. All of these things that that he is given is something that he is given 
by the Ancient of Days himself. God, the Ancient of Days, gives to the Son of Man things that can only be attributed to God, and yet he shares with him. Unlike the kingdom of the beast, this Son of Man's kingdom has no end. And notice that what happens to him happens to his people. When the Son of Man receives this everlasting kingdom, so do his people, the saints of the Most High. Though they have not won it, though they have not been the one who comes on the clouds of heaven, nevertheless, even though these saints are not him, they end up possessing everything he possesses, almost as though they are joint heirs. Now, how does the kingdom come to the saints of the Most High? Well, notice again, there is an already and not yet to them receiving the kingdom. They will one day inherit a kingdom that will last forever uh, where the beast and the, and the Antichrist will be vanquished. But for a time, they suffer. For a time, even though they are in the kingdom, they suffer from the beast and the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible because it not only connects both sections of Daniel as a hinge, it in a sense connects the Old Testament to the New. I think to see this, we need to go back uh, to the very beginning, back to the first man, Adam. When we go back there, we see that Adam was created, along with his wife Eve, to rule over the created realm. He was created to rule over the beasts, and yet rule over the beasts under the lordship of God. And it was the serpent, a beast, one who was more crafty than all the other beasts, who convinced that first man to step out of his role, to disobey God, to claim lordship for himself, and, and unwittingly to submit himself to the very beast he was supposed to rule over. He submitted himself to this serpent, and because he did so, he fell, making not only himself but all of humanity in many ways more beastly than truly human. There was hope, however, hope that was given when, when the Ancient of Days brought down judgment on the serpent, when he brought down judgment that day, he, he promised that one day there would be another man, one that who would be in some ways just like the first man, but in other ways very different and unique. This man would not be from the seed of a man, but from the seed of the woman, until that one came, there were lots of kingdoms of men, some more godly than others, some that looked more like what God's kingdom should have looked like, reigning well under the reign of God, but even the best of them, like King David's kingdom, ended up looking more beastly than godly. 
thousands of years past. And then Daniel receives this vision. A vision of one like a son of man. And this son of man finally brings about not his own beastly kingdom, but the kingdom of God. The way it should have always been. And I'm sure Daniel, he even says he, he's distraught. Could it be true? Could it be true that someday in the future, there would be a human being who would do what the first Adam should have done? 600 years, 600 years after Daniel received this vision, a man appeared named Jesus of Nazareth. He was truly human. And yet, he was born of the seed of a woman and of the Holy Spirit. And when he began to preach, the message out of his mouth again and again was the kingdom of God is here. I've brought it. Wouldn't you know it? The serpent, the great beast, came to him too. He tried to get him to leave the proper order. He tried to get him to give up his role as the second man, the second Adam, and to submit himself to the beast so that he could get all worldly kingdoms. Where the first Adam failed, this one succeeded. The second Adam ruled over the serpent. This one, Jesus of Nazareth, was called a lot of things by a lot of people. He was referred to as Christ, Holy One of God, Lamb of God, Son of God, Master, Teacher, Lord, God. But do you know what his favorite designation for himself was? When he walked around and spoke of himself in the third person, by far his favorite designation was the Son of Man. Referring to himself, he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus looked at his betrayer and said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? As he stood before his accusers that day that he went to the cross, he stood silent most of the time, like a lamb before its shears is silent, until the high priest that day screamed at him and said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus, breaking his silence, said, I am And then he went back to Daniel chapter 7. And he said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was those words that sealed his fate. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. They understood what he meant. They understood that he was saying, I am the Ancient of Days, and I deserve all worship. They condemned him to death, 
And that's where he went. He died. Three days later, he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of power. And isn't it amazing that 700 years after Daniel had his vision of the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man who is like the Ancient of Days, the Apostle John, having his vision, his apocalypse on the island of Patmos, sees the Son of Man as the Ancient of Days. I was, in the Lord, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he said, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I saw these seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. The hairs of his head were white like wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John said, he reacted like Daniel. He wasn't happy. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Before he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified, Jesus told his disciples, The Son of Man is going to be coming in a cloud with power and great glory, and when these things take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The only human being prior to Christ who ever approached the Ancient of Days in a cloud was the high priest. One day, on the Day of Atonement, he would burn incense, and in that cloud, he would approach the Ancient of Days, making a sacrifice for all of the people of God. When Daniel sees this vision of the Son of Man, he is approaching the Ancient of Days in a cloud. Jesus was the great high priest and was also the sacrifice for his people. Daniel sees this Son of Man after he has made his sacrifice for his people. Is it any wonder then that we, his people, because of what he did, receive his kingdom forever? And that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper.